Well, I was going to start with a, um, a theology gram that um, Deacon Tom gave to me, a book about these, and it had a, uh, we don't have slides today, but it had a moodogram on it and showed you uh, jo Jonah's mood swings um, through the chapters of this book. Um, and let's just say that uh, in this um, fourth chapter, it spiked, um, but that was the only time it was up there. Um, because Jonah has a disease, and the disease is Ninevitis. You won't find it in the American Medical Association Journal or the American Psychological Association, uh, the, the DMV. You just, it won't be there. Uh, but it is a common sickness of the soul. And what it is, is the desire to limit the reach of God's love. It really stems from a, a spiritual imbalance when the desire for divine justice spikes and the desire for divine mercy plummets. Now, Jonah's not a bad guy. Um, he believes in Yahweh, the God of Israel. Uh, he believes God has a plan for his life. Not a plan that he liked, but he believes that it's a plan for his life. And he's capable, as we saw last week, as Tom reminded us, uh, Todd reminded us, that, that he's capable of, of a heroic act of self-sacrifice on behalf of some very innocent sailors. Nice guy. And he even loves humanity in general. The problem is, is that God got specific and said that you also have to love Nineveh. Well, Nineveh, I mean, you've got to understand Jonah's situation here. Nineveh was a symbol of ruthless uh, and, and, and overwhelming power. I mean, you should be thinking ISIS right now. The prophet Nahum called Nineveh a city of blood, a city of endless cruelty. I mean, she would invade a country, defeat it, and then deport many of its citizens and then import uh, aliens and, and in effect engage in ethnic cleansing. And Israel would suffer this fate herself in 721 BC. The nation of Assyria and its capital Nineveh were hated throughout the ancient Near East. So in that sense, you can't blame Jonah. He's not a bad guy in that sense. So the question is, how could God do this? I mean, how could God ask a member of his chosen people, Israel, to go to these folks, not to negotiate? I mean, that might have been tolerable for Jonah. But to offer them the possibility of amnesty from divine judgment if they would simply acknowledge what, the, what they've been doing is wrong and demonstrate that what they've been doing is wrong by saying we are truly sorry and we humbly repent and showing it with sackcloth and ashes, like we're gonna do in our liturgy, except without the sackcloth and ashes a little bit later. How could God be so kind to people who would end up destroying Israel? How could God show mercy to these folks? Well now, just to be clear, in, in, the, in the verses that uh, we didn't read in, in chapter three, the king of Nineveh, uh, not only decrees that all the people, and by the way, including the animals, repent, but he admits this. Who knows? God may turn 
relent, turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. In other words, the king of Nineveh gets it. The God of creation who can calm the wind and the sea, just as we read in the story in Mark's gospel with the disciples on the boat, that God is sovereign and free. He is under no obligation to show his justice or his mercy. God is obligated only by his own character, only by his own faithfulness. He is not obligated by anything that we say or do. And so the king of Nineveh gets it right. If we repent, God may change God's mind and save us. Because God's mercy is motivated by Nineveh's repentance, but it's not necessitated by Nineveh's repentance. God will not be forced into a decision or response. We've got to get that straight. And even the king of Nineveh gets it. But it is interesting, isn't it, that in the Old Testament, God is portrayed as changing his mind 27 times. 27 times. Well, there are just nine times when God declares that he will not change his mind. Now, now theologians tend to emphasize one of those statistics or the other, all right? And thank God that God doesn't fit into theological straitjackets, all right? You'll hear people argue on one side, oh, yes, God changed his mind. And the other side, no, God never changed his mind. Unfortunately, the Old Testament has both. Um, because that's the way God is. God doesn't always fit our theological straitjackets. And thankfully, time and time again in the biblical story, God does show God's mercy in response to repentance, especially when it's done with humility, as it was in Nineveh. And, and Jonah, Jonah really knows this. I mean, he expressed it in, in verse 2 of chapter 4 in our text with phrases that are repeated throughout the Old Testament, especially in Exodus. He said, I fled to Tarshish the first time because, quote, I knew that you are a gracious and merciful, slow to anger God, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That's repeated, that phrase, over and over again in the Old Testament. I mean, let's face it, God has been slow to anger with Jonah. Yeah? I mean, the story that um, Todd told last week from the first two chapters, it all starts over again in the third chapter. We read that. God said to Jonah a second time. I mean, it, it, it starts over because uh, God is going to tell Jonah, go to Nineveh. Yeah, go to Nineveh, Jonah. You get another chance. You get a second chance. In fact, Jonah is unique among the prophets. He's the only one who does get a second chance to obey Yahweh's command. In part, I think, because God wants to instill in Jonah uh, this quality of mercy because Jonah is pretty much judgment-obsessed. So he gives him a second chance. And that, that's the, isn't that the God that, that you and I worship throughout the biblical story? The God of mercy who gives us a second chance. I mean, look at the knuckle-headed disciples in our gospel lesson today. They, they'll desert Jesus. They'll leave him but they'll get a second chance. 
I mean, Peter, whom Jesus will refer to in Matthew's gospel as Simon, son of Jonah, he, he will get a huge second chance to submit to Jesus' commission to follow Jesus to the cross. I mean, even, even after Peter denies his association with Jesus three times. In fact, in Acts chapter 10, get this, we learned that Peter is the first apostle to cross Jew-Gentile boundary, boundaries with the gospel having received his commission to do this at the very same port where Jonah fled the commission to go to Nineveh and break new ground in God's saving work. Peter. And we could go on and on with stories of God's mercy in the biblical story, right? I mean, think of Paul. Paul, who persecuted Christians, he will later write, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, he killed the church, us. And then he gets a second chance. And we, I don't know about you, but I'm blown away by Matthew's recitation of Jesus' lineage in the first chapter of Matthew's gospel. It includes the murderer, Tamar. It includes a prostitute, Rahab. And it includes an adulteress, Bathsheba, that he won't even name. He just calls her the wife of Uriah. And that's only the women. I mean, this is amazing. Yahweh is indeed a God of second chances who patiently waits for his servants to embrace the call of his scandalous, inclusive mercy and to live into his call in, in their lives. But Ninevitis strikes. The disease strikes. I mean, come on, there is human evil. There is Isis, for instance, and God is a God of justice and wrath who will bring his kingdom agenda on this earth as it has already been established in heaven, just as we will ask him to do as we do every week in the Lord's Prayer during the Eucharist. We, but the problem is this, we're impatient with God's wrath. I mean, we want it now. Right? We, we, we are God's people, like Jonah, we're sometimes tempted to, to, to the point that, you know, um, we'll see God's wrath is in, indecisive on God's part. You know, God, yeah, yeah, how long are you going to wait on this? In fact, we might even taunt God like Jonah did. In chapter 4, verse 3, he says, Please take my life from me, O Lord, for it's better for me to die than to live. I mean, um, Occam's paraphrase. If you aren't going to give these people what's coming to them right now, then I'm out of here. I mean, you choose me or Nineveh, Right? All right, Jonah needs a cure for Ninevitis. We need a cure for Ninevitis. What Jonah and you and I need to cultivate is what the Bible calls long-suffering. A patience that desires for everyone to come to repentance. I mean, Peter later gets it. Peter will write in 2 Peter. I mean, he got the cure, I think. Because here, here's what he writes. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish. Not wanting 
anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. By the way, notice that Peter doesn't say them. Peter says you. The Lord is not slow in his promise. He's patient with you. I remember the times that you have received God's patient mercy. Just as you anticipate the day of his coming justice. I mean, the day will come for the likes of Nineveh. The prophet Nahum will talk about this. The prophet Nahum will talk about the destruction of the city that did happen in 612 B.C., never to be rebuilt. But until the day of the Lord comes like a thief, God's people should serve as agents of mercy, encouraging and rejoicing in compassion and repentance and loving our enemies and interceding on behalf of our oppressors because Jesus commanded us to do just that. Now, I grew up Baptist. It's not a sin. <laughs> and in fact, I, I just was reminded of that this uh, past week because I got a call out of the blue. They're having kind of a reunion back at our Arcade Baptist Church in Sacramento in October. And, um, I, have, I, I love what that church did for me. I, I love what they did for me, teaching me my Bible and what serious discipleship means. But one thing we were not good at was emphasizing God's mercy, unless you were a Baptist. We even had a song. One door and only one, and yet its sides are two. I'm on the inside. On which side are you? <laughs> There's a hidden agenda in that song. But, but, the, but the amazing thing is that the longer I go through my life, the more I recognize the wideness of God's mercy. It just seems to get wider and wider and wider. I wanted it to get narrower, but it keeps getting wider. In fact, it's gotten so wide that I tell my students that I'm a hopeful universalist. A hopeful universalist. Someone who wishes that everyone would be saved and will be saved. Why? I just read it for you from Peter. Because the Lord I worship wishes that none would perish. God is a hopeful universalist. Well, maybe that's the reason I became an Anglican. I don't know. But anyway, um, I, God, I think, tried to teach Jonah this lesson. With an object lesson, God tried to show Jonah how out of step Jonah is with Yahweh. I mean, he's way out of step, as the text indicates in verse 8 of chapter 4, when we are told that Jan Jonah sat east of the city. That's very significant. The author there is not uh, playing with words there in the sense of, oh, it could be west, could no. Biblically, especially in the book of Genesis, east indicates humanity's drift away from God. When Adam and Eve have to leave the garden, they go east of Eden. Babel is located eastward. Lot goes eastward to settle near Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and, and in other words, um, Jonah fleeing eastward to the inhospitable arid desert 
is showing us what his spiritual condition is right now. He's fleeing farther and farther from this God of mercy. So um, God's going to use an object lesson. God appoints a plant to shade Jonah. And God shows Jonah mercy. Mercy he doesn't deserve. And, he, and Jonah rejoices in God's mercy. You know, that's where the spike comes in the, in the, in the moodle meter, all right? And he rejoices with great joy over the mercy shown to him while he is displeased with great displeasure. That's actually the way the translation goes. Displeased with great displeasure over the mercy that God chose, wants to show to Nineveh. Mercy toward himself, it produces joy. Mercy toward his enemies produces disgust. Jo Jonah cannot see beyond his own internal state to realize that God is deeply concerned outwardly about the destiny of thousands of people and even their animals. And then when God takes away the shade-producing plant, Jonah's beside himself. But God says to Jonah, it was legitimate you got upset because Jonah, that's justice. And that's what you wanted for Nineveh. You wanted me to remove my mercy from them. Now, Jonah, see how it feels? It doesn't feel good, does it? Well, the point of the object lesson is that what pleases God displeases Jonah. And what pleases Jonah, he has no desire to extend to anyone else whom he thinks is undeserving. Indeed, one of the symptoms of Ninevitis is a faith that has turned so far inward to the point that we lose sight of the bigger picture of what God is up to, of God's redemptive activity for the whole world. Well, let's bring it home. Let's land this plane. This past week, our two granddaughters were visiting us with their parents. I have a friend who says, who has 15 grandchildren, says next time he's going to have grandchildren first. Um, and you may have met uh, Clara and Eleanor last week, but the older one, Clara, is four years old, going on five, and she likes to be read to. So um, I pulled out our, a picture book in our bookshelf entitled The Story of Ruby Bridges by Robert Coles. You may know this book. You may know the story. You may remember this true story of, a, of this first grader, whom a judge ordered to go to a white elementary school in New Orleans in 1960 because the state refused to comply with desegregation laws. Well, Ruby and her family were church-going folks, and they prayed long and hard for Ruby to, have, to be strong and have courage. And every day she was escorted by marshals through angry crowds with, uh, th that held signs that said they didn't want black kids in their white school. Uh, calling her names, uh, shouting at her that they wanted to hurt her. She had to be protected by marshals going to school and coming out of school every day. And every day, Ruby attended school alone because no other kids would go near that school. So she went alone to the entire school. She went, sat alone in the school uh, classroom, and she learned with calm and confidence. Her teacher, Miss Hurley, was amazed she figured that eventually she would cave, but she didn't. And then um, one day, 
Miss Hurley was looking out the window as Ruby came up the steps of the school, and she saw Ruby stop among the crowd and, and saw her lips moving, and, and then she proceeded on into the school building. And when she got in there, Miss Hurley, Miss Hurley asked her, um, what did you say to the people? Why were you talking to the people? Ruby got very irritated. She said, I wasn't talking. I wasn't talking. I was praying. I was praying for them. You see, every morning, Ruby stopped a few blocks away from the school before she got to the crowd to say a prayer for the people who hated her. And that morning she forgot until she got into the middle of the crowd. And so she stopped in the middle of the angry crowd and prayed for them. When school was over that day, she walked a few blocks from the school and from that hateful crowd, and she prayed the prayer. She prayed every day before and after school. And this is the prayer she prayed. Please, God, try to forgive these people. Because even if they say those bad things, they don't know what they're doing. So you could forgive them just like you did those folks a long time ago when they said terrible things about you. My, my granddaughter Clara asked me to read this book three times. And I would have read it a fourth as she requested if I'd have had the long suffering cultivated in me that we've been talking about. <laughs> But look, if a first grader can get it, and if a four-year-old can get it, then why can't the grown-up of disciples of Jesus get it? I mean, we don't, we don't know what Jonah's response was at the end of this story. I don't know if you noticed that, but we never find out. The story doesn't tell us. It just ends with Yahweh asking him, should I not have pity on Nineveh? And I think maybe it ends without telling us what Jonah answered because the story is asking us that question this morning. And so we diagnose ourselves. Have we got a touch of Ninevitis? It's a contagious, you know. You can get it from the media, <laughs> even Christian media. And so the self-diagnosis has to begin with this question. Who is my Nineveh? Maybe it's a nation. Maybe it's a people group. Maybe it's a person. And then the cure begins with another question. When in the past have I experienced God's mercy in giving me a second chance? Mercy that I can now share with my Nineveh. And, and after all, all of us have at one time or another probably been someone else's Nineveh. Thomas Merton thought we might have been, so he wrote these words. Don't be too quick to assume your enemy is a savage just because he is your enemy. Perhaps he is your enemy because he thinks you are a savage. And do not be too quick to assume that your enemy is an enemy of God just because he is your enemy. Perhaps he is your enemy precisely because he can find nothing in you that gives glory to God. Perhaps he fears you because he can find nothing in you of God's love and God's kindness and God's patience and mercy and understanding of the weaknesses of people. So not too long from now in our liturgy, we'll pray our church prayer of confession in the third person plural, 
repenting that we as a church have not loved our neighbor as ourselves, but that we're longing to delight in God's will and to walk in step with him to the glory of his name. So who's your Nineveh this morning? And when did you experience God's patience and mercy and understanding that you today can now share with that Nineveh? Amen.